Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Today's episode is with Rob Webster, and it is absolutely fascinating. I'm just going to take a few seconds to explain the various roles that Rob has fulfilled over the last five years. In 2016, he joined the Southwest Yorkshire Partnership FT as its chief executive, but at the same time took up the role of executive lead in what was then the West Yorkshire STP. Since then, Rob has seconded over to be the full-time chief executive lead for what's now the West Yorkshire and Harrogate ICS, or Integrated Care System. Every year, the HSJ produces a list of the top 50 chief executives within the NHS. And in March this year, Rob was ranked number one, which was the first time that a chief executive from a mental health trust has been given that honour. The citation noted Rob's focus on the well-being of his staff team and also the importance he places on partnership building. And we will talk about both of those topics in a great deal of detail. But we will also talk about the challenges facing the NHS in terms of health inequality, in terms of the building pressure on the system with regards to mental health. And we'll also talk about what's important when it comes to building partnerships over a wide geographical area like an ICS. Is it good relationships? Is it good rules? Or is it a bit of both? So with no further ado, let's hear from Rob. Rob, a huge welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. I know that you're very busy, but I also know that you appreciate the importance of sharing learning with with others. So um, for those who don't know who you are, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Uh, my name's Rob Webster. I currently lead the West Yorkshire and Harrogate Health and Care Partnership. Uh, the latest acronym for that is an ICS, uh, formerly an STP, uh, but a true partnership uh, that supports about 2.7 million people. 
And uh, interestingly, uh, today is my 31st work anniversary. So I started work in health and care 31 years ago today, and I've done a lot of things between uh, then and now. So where did you start then? So I actually started on the fast stream in the civil service as a as a statistician. So I was working in London uh, and uh, ostensibly started off with something that would clear my debts and then I'd decide what to do later. And, you know, 31 years later, I'm still doing health and care. So uh, it, it's something which has been incredibly fulfilling and rewarding as a career. Before your current role, you were... You were the chief executive of the South West Yorkshire Partnership Trust, which is a mental health provider. Is that have you been working in mental health for the most of that time or have you had a, a mix of experiences? I've had a really I've had a really mixed experience, really, which has been quite helpful for me in terms of understanding different perspectives. So I spent about half my half my career uh, in the civil service as a senior civil servant in the Department of Health and Care. I had a short stint in the cabinet office in the prime minister's delivery unit. Okay. Um, when was that? Just that was in interest. 2006. So, right. Um, okay. Back end well, of the Blair and into the Brown period. Right. So uh, was that around the time when people like Michael Barber were around and or that kind of influence was there? That influence was definitely there. Michael had just left Ian Watmore. He went on to right. be the chief executive of the FA was the perm sec. He's a really good guy. Um, and after that, I became a chief exec in the NHS. So I spent four years running a primary care trust, uh, then another three years running a, a community uh, and mental health provider, then went off to be the chief exec of the NHS Confederation, which is the organisation that kind of sticks up for the NHS in the way the BMA sticks up for doctors. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then came back out to do two jobs, really, be the chief exec of Southwest Yorkshire Partnership. Uh, and also create this ICS, uh, which has been really fulfilling, actually. My experience of working in public services, some of the most effective and, and impactful leaders have had experience of working locally and centrally so that they understand both systems. Have, have you found that? I mean, particularly that experience of working in cabinet office would give you a real insight into how things get done at cent- or, or, or not um, at yes. central government level. Well, I think it is like that. I think it's um, it's really important to recognise that um, all bits of the system have a role and all bits of the system need to work. And actually, the motivations and intentions of most people in the system are really consistent. So you go into public service for a reason. Yeah. And usually to make a difference to the public and to outcomes and to make things better. And I found that's been the case for politicians, senior mandarins, you know, as much as it is for uh, peer support workers, nurses, doctors, therapists. You know, I think we've got a common set of public service values which cut through everything that we do. Never more than over the past 18 months has that link between central and local been really tested. I mean, and as we've just said, you, you were the chief executive of the Southwest Yorkshire Partnership Trust, which is mental health providers. So um, what has that been like over the pandemic or at least for the time that you were in the chief executive's chair there? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm just on secondment from there at the moment. I was, do, I, as I said, I was doing both jobs, really, of running a trust and running the system. And uh, we were reflecting on this with in our appraisals recently with the with the directors, 
And I think there was a consistent theme of it was the hardest time we've ever had in our careers yeah. and, and the most rewarding. Um, so some of the things, some of the choices we had to make, some of the things that we had to do, the kind of intense pressure, uh, the physical, emotional drag of, um, you know, the work that we had to do uh, was such that, you know, made it incredibly hard. But being able to safeguard people, being able to transform services, being able to keep people safe and well, looking after our staff, you know, so so incredibly worthwhile. And actually, I think we've seen the best of many people in our organisations and in our communities. And what um, what sort of, of organisational pressures has the pandemic brought about, particularly for for staff? Because yeah. I know in conversations I'm having, a lot of people feel completely burnt out after the past 18 months. And actually, the work's nowhere near done yet because yeah. there are there are further challenges to come. Well, I think that the, the, you know, fundamentally, the first thing is you can't, you could never get away from COVID. You know, it's in society, it's in your life, your home life, it's affecting that, it's affecting your work life. Yeah. So you can't switch off. Uh, so staff can't switch off from COVID ever. Um, and then, you know, we, we started uh, at, the, at the start of the pandemic. If you remember, you couldn't buy food. Yeah. Um, now, if you've worked 12 eggs, hour shifts. Eggs and flour were, were, were yeah. two things that were hard to get hold of, certainly. Yeah. So supermarket shelves are empty. If, you're, if you've worked a 12 hour shift overnight in a mental health ward and you've got supermarkets empty, what are you going to do? Yeah. So, so there's basic things which have we, we've had to address. So we fed our staff. If you're on a 12 hour shift, we fed you. We, we, we created pop-up shops to buy things from because we had stores. Um, we gave people extra time. We put in place seven day a week, 24 hour hotlines, uh, crisis support, counseling, pastoral care from our pastoral people, bereavement support because you're dealing with death. Uh, more often, uh, including in your own life. So the, the kind of um, the importance of staff well-being has been paramount to me and to the organisations that I've run. So whether that's the partnership or the or the or the trust, you know, we've put staff well-being right at the front of what we're doing. I mean, that is absolutely critical because without the staff being motivated and feeling appreciated and looked after if that didn't happen that that would transfer it yeah. into poor patient care well i always say you can believe that in your heart which i do oh you can or i'll show you the i'll show you the evidence yes. you know michael west's work around effective teams and positive working cultures saving lives producing safer environments gives you all the evidence that you need but it's also you know a very human thing isn't it you want to look at you, you we need to care for each other if we're going to create a context which is caring. And I hope one of the biggest lessons from the pandemic is that everyone recognises that the NHS is made of people. Yeah. You know, it's not the buildings or the drugs or the kit, it's the people. It's people yeah. who care for people. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. Just thinking about mental health more generally, um, do you think the biggest pandemic-driven challenges have been and gone or are they still to come? I think they're still to come. We we knew before, uh, you know, as we got into the pandemic in the first wave, we've had four waves. Let's remember that. In uh, nationally, people talk about having three waves. In, in West Yorkshire, we've had four. 
Right. And um, in some places, this this has never gone away. You know, in Bradford and in Kirklees, there's always been some form of restrictions and some form of issue. And I think what we knew from the modelling and the predictions was that there's four elements of the pandemic that affect healthcare. You know, first is treating people with COVID. The second is making sure that people who need treatment who haven't got COVID get care. The third is exacerbations of long-term conditions because you've delayed treatment or not being able to get the support you need. And the fourth is mental health, the impact on your mental health and well-being from living through all of this. And the fourth one is a slower burn, but it's bigger. And our expectation is that there'll be about a 300% increase in demand over the next three or four years around anxiety and depression right through to acute psychosis. And um, we need to gear up for that. So there's there's just multiple challenges for the NHS over the next number of years. You have on one hand the backlog, which needs clearing. You have people who have not presented with issues because of the need to social, or at least the, the feeling they have that they need to social distance, which creates additional pressure. And then you've got what you're describing there as conditions which result from lockdown, from the pandemic itself. So it's quite difficult to get one's head around all of that and try and see how on earth the NHS will will get through it. You can't do it on your own. That's the key thing. So one of the really good things about um, about the last 18 months is it's shown the true power of partnership. You know, so we've got 111,390 people in West Yorkshire who who were shielding. And the support to those people was provided by the third sector, by councils, the NHS working collectively and the first people on the scene of the third sector. And, yeah. and they're a they're they're a fundamental part of our partnership. It's no, it's no it's no accident that partnership is in the title of our, of the trust. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about the mental well-being of people, uh, you need to look at meaningful activity. You need to look at purpose. You need to look at jobs. You need to look at housing. You need to look at physical health together. So we've always worked in partnership as a trust. And then in the broader integrated care system, we're saying you know we can only succeed. If we have a true partnership of communities, the NHS, councils uh, and the third sector. Yeah. Uh, and if we recognise that as as we're a guest in people's lives, uh, we're not the only ones, we can bring teams together around the needs of people. And I think that's one of the ways in which we start to address some of the problems that you're describing. Yeah. But it will clearly take time. And this is so what you described there are the building blocks for what's referred to as place-based partnerships. And so we will talk about the ICS in a second, but that is the place-based partnership in in your area. Is that relatively well developed, do you think? Yeah, in in all places. So so I think there's a really important thing here, which, um, no, no, firstly, we should recognise that ICS has been gone for five years. Yeah. And um, there's there's a fundamental problem that we face in the 21st century, and that's inequality and multimorbidity. So we know that people tend to be dealing with more than one thing, and their mental, physical and social needs together need to be catered for, so that we don't end up with older people in hospital, uh, people with ADHD or autism, 
uh, unable to, you know, fulfil their potential. Um, yeah. We knew that going into the pandemic, and that's why ICSs were created to to build these partnerships. And these partnerships need to be in your neighbourhood, they need to be in the place that you live, and they need to be in the system. And the, the fundamental change in thinking that people need is that you're all part of that system. Yeah. And yeah. that system is a servant of the work that you're doing. Um, so if you want to um, provide join up, joined up care around the needs of an older person who's frail, then the council, the NHS, their carer, their partner, you know, the third sector all have a role to play. Yeah. And it's the if it's in Armley and Leeds, say, then Armley Helping Hands, the local GP, the social worker, the family are the ones who are involved. And they're not really interested necessarily about what's going on in Leeds. They're interested in what's going on in Armley. They might be interested in what's going on in Leeds if if the frail older person needs to go to hospital and the hospital needs to know who they are and uh, make sure they get good care. They might be interested in what's going on in West Yorkshire if they... Um, if they have a psychotic episode and become so unwell, they harm somebody. Yeah. Because they need to have a safe place to go in West Yorkshire. So on that basis, everything we built comes from the person first, then the neighbourhood, then the place, the, then the system. And people live in places. You know, we started off this conversation, Andrew, uh, reminiscing about uh, holidays and you talked about where you're from. You know, so people have got a connection to the place they're from. And I think the more we build from that, the more we build from place, it gives people meaning yeah. and it gives gives organisation and people things to get tied to. So we have very strong place-based partnerships yeah. built around local authority footprints in West Yorkshire. I think that's so important. Um, a lot of the conversations I have with particularly council chief execs and senior leaders is around um, trying to, to just reconsider what makes their area a place rather than just an administrative yeah. area um you know what is it about wigan what is it about berry what is it about doncaster you know that actually makes it a place and what can people be proud about there so i think for a, a you know, obviously with the leveling up process and agenda for a lot of places around the country particularly in yorkshire and the Northwest, the identity of a lot of places was linked to industry of some description, mm-hmm. uh, which is now gone. And you know, obviously that's not what we're here to talk about today. But it is really I think it's great to see councils and the NHS and the voluntary sector and other players, businesses as well, coming together and trying yeah. to think about what really makes this a place and how can we make it attractive for young people to maybe stay here instead of thinking the only route out is to escape. Yeah, I think I mean, I think it is what we should be talking about here. And I think this is part of the shift. Yeah. Um, You know, a a very topical example would be a big debate at the moment about the spending review and how much the NHS should receive. It's all it's all portrayed in the currency of cost. So how much is the NHS going to cost? How much are we going to pay? Actually, it should be in the currency of investment. You know, the money that you spend is jobs. Yeah. yeah. It's infrastructure. It's investment in people's futures. And, you know, from hospital bills, which will employ local people, a supply chain, which ensures that we've got the right kits, drugs and everything else to administer care, 
through to the jobs and skills of the people themselves. We should be talking about the contribution that the health and care system makes. And then we should be talking about, um, you know, a healthy population drives productivity in a healthy economy. Yes. Having a good job, having good jobs leads to good health. Yes. This is a symbiotic relationship. And those places that you describe, I mean, you can think, well, in West Yorkshire, you know, if you think about Coldale and Kirklees traditionally built on mill, uh, mill towns, uh, Wakefield, more mining and industrial. And that, and that still, that still prevails in some of the psyche yeah. of the communities. But it's also the case that if, if you look at somewhere like Coldale, I always say it's like an archipelago. You've got all these little places with discrete identities. Um, which have their own cultures, which you can work with. Yeah. Um, but they feel part of something else as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you have to understand that if you're going to address the causes of ill health. Yeah. Around housing, education, employment. Um, so I think it's, it really is so fundamental to us to get right. So Rob, this year you were the first chief executive of a mental health trust to be ranked number one on the HSJ chief executive list so that's an important recognition for mental health services i think so just a couple of questions why is it taking so long do you think for mental health and mental health leadership to get this recognition and and what sort of things were you doing were you doing differently do you think that that earned you that position um I think it's a difficult one, Sam. I mean, I didn't never, I never applied to be chief executive of the year. I wasn't expecting to be chief executive of the year. Um, it was nice recognition. It's, it's not, it's, I will say it's not what drives me. The things that drive me are making a difference and seeing my staff do well. Two, no, I, I, I totally, yeah. I, I knew that you would, you wouldn't like me asking that. No, it's question. all right. It's all but right. it is, I mean, I guess yeah. the, the fundamental bits are, you know, about mental health and yeah. it's, it's profile. Yeah. And then also just some of the things that yeah. you were doing as yeah. a leader that you think were noticed. No, that's all right. I think I think the things I was really pleased with in the citation was, was the focus on staff well-being and the yeah. focus on partnership. Yeah. Um, so that came out really strongly. That kind of sense of collaboration and partnership. Now, I think what we've had in in mental health services is phenomenal leadership. For many years, same in councils, same in acute trust, same in most public sector organisations, actually. But most of, most of the time it had been under the radar. And I think because I was in the mental health space and leading a partnership, and I think it was easier for me to lead a big partnership with six acute trusts in it for big mental health providers, eight councils, hundreds of GPs because of the role I've got yeah, and because of the experience. So I think where you end up with is that, that strong leadership's probably always been there, but people have woken up to the fact that mental health is a priority and system leadership and partnership is the way that leaders need to be now. Yeah. And in the past, you could be incredibly successful and forget the system. You know, Bill Moyes, the chief exec of Monitor that regulated foundation trusts, famously said there's no such thing as the system. There is only the regulator and the organization. You know, so you could be successful by having a successful organization. You cannot be successful now. Your organization will not be successful without collaboration and partnership. That is exactly right. And that's something that some of the previous interviewees like Damien Allen, chief executive of Doncaster Council, 
is is a very systems type thinker and absolutely thinks in that way as well. But I think there's there's a couple of really important bits there around a focus on staff well-being and a focus on partnership. And actually, when you when you boil everything down from the experience of the last 18 months, if you were to take away two clear actions for anybody working in public services, it could well be those two things. I would add one, Andrew, actually, which which we've which we've looked at, you know, extensively, we're already committed to, which is inequalities, uh, you know, a real focus on inequalities um, and being courageous about that. And um, if you look at, if look at the job card, so the job card for STPs first and then ACS is second, was to tackle health inequalities, manage unwarranted variations in care, use your resources wisely together to make the biggest difference you can. The first one of those, you know, it's hidden in plain sight, isn't it? That poorer people die sooner. Yeah. Black black males more likely to be sectioned, more likely to be arrested, more likely to be subjected to all sorts of other uh, inequalities and inequity of treatment. You know, people with a learning disability die in 20 years sooner than other people, even though learning disability is not a health condition. You know, only 6% of people, adults with learning disability, having a job. You know, there's all this stuff we know, yeah. and it's shocking, and we ain't surprised about it. Now, I think what's happened over the last 18 months is people have woken up to this in in new and more profound ways. Yes. And I think there's two things we say in West Yorkshire. One is we should stop admiring the problem and start doing something about it. And by admiring the problem, let's just do another bit of analysis that proves we're right that, you know, black and Asian communities are disadvantaged or people in disability die too soon or poorer people get poorer access to care or the inverse care law persists. We know it. Stop. Stop yeah. analysing. Start doing. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that, that we've started to say a lot more often is let's not be blinded by the average. Um, and if you look at things like the vaccination campaign on COVID, it's fantastic. What an achievement. If you go beyond the average, what you can see, it's not quite the same story. If you're thinking about becoming pregnant or you're a young woman, it's not quite the same story if you're from Pakistani, Bangladeshi or Black Caribbean origin. What can we do? And guess what? You know, if you're from a Pakistani, uh, Black Caribbean or Bangladeshi origin, you're more likely to be affected by other health inequalities. You're more likely to be affected by COVID. So unless we start to take that approach and shine that light on those sorts of issues, we won't address them. Yeah. And in the partnership, I'm really proud of the fact that that's exactly what we're doing. What's a practical example of addressing some of those inequalities? That what? Yeah. Well, I'll give you a couple. So, so yeah. I'll talk about two populations. And so people with a learning disability up to eight times more likely to die of COVID. Um, and I've already talked about the inequalities in life expectancy. Um, so what we've done is, um, as a partnership of uh, different places in the ICS, one of the things that we do together is share good practice. So that's one of the reasons we work together at West Yorkshire level. And another is to tackle wicked issues. So this is a wicked issue and we've got good practice. So for people with a learning disability, the good practice in Wakefield on health checks for people with LD um, has been extended across all five places. So we have almost four in five people learn disability now for their annual health check. Yeah. Which is which is which is fantastic. Over and above that, 
the acute hospitals have started to prioritise people with a learning disability for elective surgery over and above everybody else because you're more likely to die of a preventable illness. And um, we've put on special clinics for people with learning disability and autism to make sure they could be vaccinated, yeah. which has involved partnership between community LD teams, acute hospitals and so on. So for our learning disability populations, a range of things we've done. For our Black and uh, Asian and other minority ethnic communities, um, we've done a range of things. We had a big race equality commission mm-hmm. uh, that challenged us to say, look, you're doing a lot of work on this, but are you doing enough? And it said you're not. So we've um, we've put in place a range of developments. So we've got a race equality fellowship where people who need to jump the fire break that there is uh, between where they are in their career and a senior role can do because they get the support. So they'll never be accused of not having the experience. Yeah. We've uh, just kicked off an anti-racism campaign, which were on the recommendations from that commission. 563 organisations have signed up to a movement to become anti-racist in West Yorkshire. That's the police, that's sports clubs, that's the NHS, it's the councils, it's charities, grassroots organisations, big organisations. It demonstrates to our black and Asian communities that white people think that this is important as much as as, as their as their colleagues and counterparts and communities. Yeah. Um, so we've got lots of examples like this. We've got a Race and Equalities Academy that we've set up. We have a violence reduction unit and partnership approach to trauma-informed care, which looks at people who've been subject to abuse and criminal activity and exploitation and how that affects their later life chances plus their engagement with services. As you can see, I, go, I could go on about this for a long yeah, time. It's clearly something that you're very, you're very passionate about. And actually, one of my questions was going to be about, you know, if I did put myself in the shoes of a person with a learning disability, what would be changing for me? And I think that you've mm-hmm. outlined that really, really clearly. And, and it's important that these are real, practical, impactful things yeah. rather than just symbolism and changing something presentationally. Yeah. And for leadership, for leaders, I mean, what I would say, there's a big lesson in here for leaders, really. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've made, in, in some ways, had my prejudices or beliefs confirmed, and in others, I've been surprised in a really positive way. So, so fundamentally, I believe in the potential of people. Yeah. And I always believe if you give people a headroom to succeed, usually they go much further and surprise you with what, what they deliver. And in West Yorkshire, what we're trying to do is have a distributed leadership model that promotes the potential of people. So we trust others to act on our behalf and we give the job to someone who A, wants it and B, can do it or has the potential to it and we support them. And in the last, um, by being clear about our shared purpose to improve outcomes to local people, by being clear we want to tackle inequalities, care variation and use our money together, by having a clear vision, and then saying to people, do this on our behalf. Yeah. Things have happened which we didn't plan for. Uh, I'll give you a little example. From the beginning, we said, look, 260,000 people care for somebody because they love them or feel a sense of duty to them. They're as important to us as the 126,000 people who work in health and care because without them, we couldn't function. We need to support them. 
So we put in place a lot of support. And then when the, when the vaccination programme started and the cohorting, a decision was taken nationally. We'd already taken a decision locally to prioritise carers. That if you're if you're in cohort four or six, your carer could be vaccinated. There was no definition of what a carer was. So so we we created one. We agreed it through our carers program. They brought it to the leadership. The the, the carers program was led by this fantastic woman, Fatima Khan Shah. She said, look, this is a definition. We agreed it. We said to the GPs. Uh, and others and the, the vaccination account. Are you happy with this? They were happy. We then promoted it through the third sector and the parents groups and other charities of people who would be have caring responsibilities. And as a result of that, um, 51,000 more people registered with their GP as a carer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were identified as a carer on the record where previously they weren't. That meant they got access to better care and support generally. So by by making things important, giving people the job card, giving them the permission, giving them the resources, creating a sense of common purpose, you end up with things things take off and go far beyond what you wanted to do in the first place in yes. real, practical, discernible ways. Yes. So you're now, as you said earlier, the chief exec lead for the ICS, the integrated care system. How did that transition work? I mean, I know that you said that you were doing both roles for a while and now you're doing this role. So I I guess my main question is, is the ICS a thing? Is it an entity? Is it a time limited project? I mean, is, is that role that you're doing at the minute, will that become a substantive executive role or is it about implementation? I mean, there's a short answer is yes, there's a substantive chief exec role, which and there'll, be a, there'll be a statutory body created and from the 1st of April next year, subject to legislation. So the recruitment of the substantive chief exec will uh, will occur in the next month or so. Okay. And I've said to everybody that I'll, I'll be going for it. But as you say, I was doing both jobs for five years, but came to the conclusion with the help of my coach, I have to say, uh, it wasn't possible to do both jobs in the middle of a pandemic and create a new statutory organisation, <laughs> uh, which was fair enough, actually. Yes. And how do so just to give us an idea of how the ICS works, how does the governance work? How are decisions made and will that change as it becomes established and becomes staffed? Yeah, I mean, I think it, so there's a simple answer to this question. So at the moment, there's very strong governance and that's essential because we have to be able to take decisions. So all the things I've talked about so far um, has been on the basis of really strong governance and good decision making. And, um, and is that a board or something which involves all of the yeah. providers that are involved or how does it work? So we have a we have a memorandum memorandum of understanding be, between all partners. Every partner is a real partner. They're not. You can't be an associate or play at it. And there's a partnership board. That's that meets in public. It's chaired by a local council leader. All the council leaders are on it, as as are all the chief execs and chairs of all the organisations, including the third sector. And the, there's lay representation too. That's oversees a a series of governance with a system leadership executive, so all of the executives from all the organisations meet. There's a clinical forum that advises the system leadership executive. 
there's a joint committee of CCG, so we can make collective decisions on money. There's a joint committee for the, or a committee in common for the acute providers, because they work as a provider collaborative. And there's a joint committee for the mental health providers, because they work as a provider collaborative too. And every place has some governance that it works on, so you can make decisions in places. So we have governance that allows us to make decisions for acute trusts, for mental health trusts through those collaboratives, for places through the place arrangements and for the system. Uh, and that works really well. And that will have to morph into governance that supports a statutory body. Yeah. And the big challenge there will be uh, one of relationships and outlook and mindset. Yeah. And, and I'll just just to describe that for a second. Throughout this last five years, I've been really clear that the ISS is a system. It's not a, it's not an organisation. It's a system, mm-hmm. and everybody is in it. And if you're a GP working with your team and with input from social workers and others, that's just a manifestation of the system. As is as is you know paediatric cardiac surgery in Leeds. That's a manifestation of the system working. Um, so you're all in it. I would say it's like it's like that old adage: you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. When you think about that, you start thinking, well, actually, I, I'm part of I'm part of this. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the solution. Um, so we're going we're going from a position where everybody is in the system, and the system is their servant. Yes. And as a true partnership, the partnership can only do what the partners ask it to, and that power dynamic is really important. So it's the partners ask the partnership to do things on its behalf that it wants them to do. What we're moving to is a statutory body that gets given the money and has to, in some ways, provide some accountability for performance of the partners. And that changes the dynamic. Um, Now, the the leadership challenge here is not to go back to that hierarchical Secretary of State pulls a lever, NHS England pull a lever, regions pull a lever, ICS pulls a lever, hospitals expected to jump. Yeah, you know, that, that 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 will not solve the problems of the 21st century on people's mental, physical, and social needs. True partnership will. So, as we create this statutory thing, it's got to look and feel like no organisation we've had before. And what's the right balance? Because what you've described the way things as the way things are working at the minute is quite a lot of governance, a lot of oversight. And how how do you get the balance right, or how will the balance? settle in the right place between that feeling of partnership and everybody being involved, but then also having an organisation that's agile enough to actually get on with things and not, and not, and not have to wait for a board meeting every month. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the point, isn't it? So I think what we need to, so it's, we've got five principles that guide the, that guide the partnership. And it, the first one's about being ambitious and the last one's about subsidiarity. So we are ambitious and setting out those clear ambitions allows you to get on with acting. And subsidiarity means that you push the problem, the decision making as close to the issue as problem, you know, the action as close to the issue as possible. So you want governance and decision making, good relationships in neighbourhoods. You want the same in places and you want the same in West Yorkshire. But you want you want as little done as West Yorkshire as you need to. And the vast majority of work gets done in places. Um, So those places, those neighbourhoods, with permission, with delegated responsibilities, just get on with it. But they do so through a collaboration. 
Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, so uh, you've already talked about inequality as being a key priority for the ICS. Are there any other areas specifically that you want to pull out briefly? Yeah, we've got as a as a partnership prior to the pandemic, we produced a five year plan. It's the third plan that we produced, um, and it was owned by everybody in the system. Uh, it has to meet national standards, and there are about 176 of them, literally. Yeah. Uh, and we said, no, I can remember that. Um, so we said there are 10 things, 10 things that we want to be known for, and 10 things we want to achieve. And the first three are about health inequalities. Yeah. So they're about reducing healthy the gaps in healthy life expectancy. Everybody knows the gaps in life expectancy, but healthy life expectancy is 23 years gap. It's just wrong. They're about reducing the life, the difference in life expectancy for people with mental illness or learning disability. And, and just to be clear, that healthy life expectancy is to do with quality of life rather than just yeah. being alive. Yeah. Yeah. How long are you alive for before you have a life limit? You know, limiting illness. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. 50 is not good, and that's kind of where we are with most of our deprived populations. What we said then is health, life expectancy, learning disability, and, and serious mental illness and um, child poverty and turning the curve on childhood obesity, which is something that's been achieved in Leeds and we want to do it everywhere. So those first three of the ten are about health inequalities. There's then four which are more clinical, yeah. early, de- early detection of cancer. Uh, we have the finest cancer services in Europe. We have poor cancer outcomes because people present too late. Uh, and... Uh, so cancer, early presentation of cancer, reduction in suicides, which is still the biggest killer of young men, the focus on antimicrobial resistance, because that will do for all of us if we don't get that right, uh, and uh, a reduction in stillbirths and maternal mortality. Okay. So there's four kind of clinical ones. Then there's three which are broader. So the first is that we have a, we have a leadership which re- reflects the populations we serve. Yes. Not everyone looks like me, you know, middle-aged white block, you know, in shorthand. One that's about we've got to be a global leader in climate change. Yes. So we, we have a contribution to make. And if you live in Calderdale and you've had three once-in-a-generation floods in a decade, you know this is real. This isn't, we're not, this isn't an existential threat. This is a today threat. Uh, and then the last one is about our contribution to the economy. That's a very interesting and comprehensive list. And that last one goes back to the discussion we had earlier about creating a healthy workforce and equipping people to be able to yeah. do fulfilling work, that type of thing. Now, now I think the big challenge for the partnership in the next period is I describe it as double trouble. I'm old now, I guess. I'm old enough uh, to have been around for 31 years today. And back when I started, people waited years care and in the 90s things weren't great in terms of the infrastructure and the waiting times and in the noughties i was lucky enough to be part of the generation that sorted that out yeah and now it's back um so all the things i've just described our 10 big priorities which are about multi-morbidity inequality wider determinants of health they've got worse because of the pandemic fact We've now got waiting back. We have to do both. So I, I want to ask you a little bit now about leadership and culture. So before I ask about your own 
leadership style. Just a question occurs to me about your ICS and the profile it's got, and it's considered to be a, a very successful one so far. Do you think that's mostly to do with the attitudes of individuals and organizations with regards to partnership working, or is it about the planning and having all the right ideas and measures in place? It's both. I mean, I think, you know, you, you hear people talk about it's all about the relationships. Or you hear people say it's all about the incentives and the governance. Um, it's not. It's about both. And yeah. Julia Unwin's done some fantastic work on, um, which I quote a lot, about the rational and the relational lexicon. So we want things to be impactful, good, fair, just. So we have good rules. Uh, you know, good governance, good assurance, good inspection regimes. Um, but on their own, that's not enough. You need a relational lexicon, which is about trust and innovation and storytelling and, um, you know, coming together in the sense of something that has meaning to all of us. Yeah. And if you have both of those, good rules and good relationships that in works. the service of common purpose, it works. Yeah. So how would you describe your own leadership style and who or what has influenced you? I think uh, I've been able to be part of a number of development programs over the years. And one of the things that I learned a while ago is you've got to have different styles. Uh, and you've got to be the, the most successful leaders can flex their styles. And I have a very uh, I, I have a strong kind of. Tending, tendency towards coaching, collaborative, engaging styles of leadership, but I'm also able to set the pace and be directive if required. And, and um, I imagine that flexibility was needed over the past 18 months. Yeah, yeah so I've been, I've, the directive piece has been, I've used it more in the last 18 months than I have previously, but if you're in a fire, you want someone to tell you where the exits are and where to go. You don't want to have a, a quick sit down and a chat about what's the best thing to do right now. Um, so, but, but my natural style, my natural tendency is a coaching one that believes in the power of people. Yeah. And I guess the biggest thing that's, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with amazing people throughout my career. And some of them have been very junior and some of them have been very senior. And I think the thing that's re- that really helped me was I was, on something called, uh, I think in the in the noughties they worked out that civil servants weren't being prepared properly to be permanent secretaries, and it was likely that people from outside would be required. So why not look after our civil servants a bit more? And I was on the first cohort of this thing called the High Potential Development Scheme for Future Permanent Secretaries, and as I've had huge titles, haven't they? These things. Uh, the uh, part of that, yeah, you had to write a leadership manifesto. Mm. And um, Georgina, who was looking after the programme, was talking to me. I said, I'm not doing it. You know, I think I might have used some Anglo-Saxon language about what I thought of having to do such a task. Uh, it was a load of whatever. And uh, she said, go and do it. So, so I came back. I said, I can't do it. I don't want to. It just sounds stupid. I'm, I'm leadership manifesto. So why don't you just write down what you believe in then? So I said, oh, I can do that. So I wrote down what I believed in, and it's like half a page. And, you know, I believe in the power of the potential of people. I, be- I believe what we do makes a difference. I believe in the potential of people. If you give people a headroom, they'll succeed. 
you've got to create positive cultures and say thank you you've got to address poor performance because it affects everybody because everybody knows it's there and can see it you've got yeah. to be authentic so a group of things that i believed in i said well this is my these are my leadership principles and what i do now since then every job that i go for they're in the pack every job i start i share them with everyone in the organization before we start so i, I say look it's what I believe in. You know, don't guess. Yeah. Don't guess. This is what I believe in. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's really shapes the way that I work. I think that's really helpful as well for people working alongside you and reporting to you to understand exactly what drives you, because then they can understand how you operate, what your yeah. likely reaction to things is going to be, what your level yeah. of uh, tolerance for autonomous action is, yeah. etc. So, so I think there's sort of that was that was a fairly seminal thing that stuck with me, yeah. And I think that made me understand and appreciate the power of the sort of values-based approaches, because behind those principles are a set of values. But there's probably two other big things that kind of influenced the way that I lead. You know, so the second one was not being a civil servant anymore. So if you, when you're a civil servant, you, you you're not the story ever. So you do everything you can when you're speaking in public to be clear and straight and factual and engage on the topics, but you're not really connecting. And once I became not, not a civil servant, I could start to connect a bit more and be a bit more authentic and personal. And um, the power of that, I think, was brought on to me the most when I started talking about the death of my brother who died by suicide. And I hadn't done that ever uh, for 10 years. 10 years after he died, I would never talk about it. I wouldn't mention it. Um, and then I did some work with Time to Change and I made a pledge that I'm going to talk about it. So I did. And I did a blog about it. And the response to that was unbelievable because a lot of people that I worked with, some of them very senior, some of them not, said to me, I've been affected as well. Yeah. No, I know, I know, I know how that feels. Uh, I, I've been affected as well. And what that showed to me was a huge amount of stigma. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of things that people had that they could bring to work with them, which, um, which would, which would have value because the more people talk about this sort of stuff, we know from the research, the less likely it is that people will die by suicide. And the more likely it is that organisations would be kinder and compassionate to people who've been affected. So, so I think becoming, uh, you know, using some of my, bringing my whole self to work. Yes. And that experience really shaped the way that I am now. So I'm very happy to talk about the fact I've got a son with a learning disability and, and what that's like. Mostly it's a joyous thing. Yes. You know, it, it, and people have got to understand that, you know, and, uh, and, and that, those sorts of experiences. So that, that, that's led to this thing where I believe, you know, you should bring your whole self to work. I completely understand that and I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I do also appreciate what you were saying about civil servants. I've got a lot of friends who, who work there and they cannot bring their whole self to the job because of the role they do. And I think that is, um, well, I think that's a conversation for another time, whether that's a good or bad thing. But, yeah, yeah. it's certainly a factor for sure. So, Rob, as a very quick final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? 
be yourself. Be yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Bring know, your whole self to work. <laughs> be authentic. Yeah. You know, if you want to... Well, leadership happens at all levels. It, it truly does. And I think, you know, I'm led by all sorts of people in my organisation and system all the time. And if you can, if you can be yourself, and connect with people emotionally as well as intellectually in pursuit of a common aim, yeah. you'll make a big difference. And and, and, and if there's a young person or a, a, or a person trying to make their way in a career and they are, you know, as, as, as a leader, you will recognize if they are behaving the way they think people think they should behave or if they're being themselves. I mean, it, it just, yeah. it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I'd, I'd always say ask for help as well. I mean, I think people are so generous. I've been I've been fortunate to be supported by generous people who give me their time, their expertise, feedback. Yeah. So I think you should always, if you ask people, they'll usually help you. And uh, you know, spend time uh, getting to understand people, put yourself in their shoes. You know, there's a range of things that will 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 help you be a leader. And, you know, seeing the, seeing the world through other people's eyes is, is definitely one of them. Yeah. Rob, thank you so much for your time. No, thanks for, for the conversation. I've enjoyed it. Well, my goodness, there's loads there. Um, it was a really thoughtful and wide ranging discussion. So there was quite a few things I wanted to highlight. Um, the first is Rob's experience of working in both central government and at a local level, his experience in cabinet office and what he was able to to take from that to understand how the wider system works. I think that's really important. There are an increasing number of really good leaders who have that dual experience of working centrally and locally. I love the laser-like focus Rob has on staff well-being, partnership building and reducing inequality. So on staff well-being, he gave practical examples of how after a long shift, the trust would feed staff. And because it was very difficult at the start of the pandemic to buy food in shops, if you left it too late in the day, they, they provided a shop. In terms of partnership building, that important relationship between good rules and good relationships and how it's important to have both. And how when building a partnership, Rob was very clear about everybody having an equal place around the table. So the council, the acute trusts, the community and mental health trusts, but also the third sector. And he really acknowledged the role of the third sector as playing such an important part on the front line, particularly in mental health. And it's the first time I've heard an NHS chief executive talk with quite so much enthusiasm. It was also fascinating to hear Rob discuss place and the importance of place and actually uh, a real understanding there about what role the NHS and health services play in developing a place economically. Without a healthy workforce, there is no healthy economy. One of my favorite insights from Rob was the idea of the need to go beyond the average. So the idea that if you look at the average in terms of vaccinations, in terms of reducing COVID infections, we might be doing quite well. But actually, if you go beyond that, there are specific challenges. And Rob highlighted people with learning disabilities, people from a Pakistani, Black Caribbean or Bangladeshi background in his area who are more likely to be impacted by 
other health inequalities as well. And he highlighted specific actions that they are taking, like prioritizing surgeries for those with learning disabilities. So it's not just talk and planning. There's real action there as well. So thank you for listening. And if you want to catch up on any of the previous episodes, you can get them on the Radical Reformers website, radical-reformers.com. And do remember to register on the website or follow the podcast on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode.